Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. This week we ask the following burning questions. How many guys can Gordon Sondland throw under a single bus? What's the future of the Equal Rights Amendment? And, most importantly, what does Gloria Steinem think about all this? Alyssa Mastromonaco, Tian Tran, State Senator Jennifer McClellan, and Gloria Steinem, yes, the real one, tackle these questions this week and more. So the Gordon problem is just as big a problem as the Trump administration feared. As we're recording this right now, Gordon Sondland is throwing Trump officials under the bus like it's the bottom of the eighth inning and he's got a no hitter going. Devin Nunes has fastened his thinking cap on so tightly that it's cutting off circulation to his brain. Nikki Haley's weird book tour flex about not intervening to prevent Trump from ruining America last week seems even dumber now. But there are other things going on in the world as well. For example, women's equality. Did you know that despite one TV show and two movie reboots of Charlie's Angels, women still aren't constitutionally guaranteed equality? And did you know further that we're one state away from ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment? And did you know further that one of those states, Virginia, just flipped from red to blue? Very interesting. Here to help me break this down and more is former White House Deputy Chief of Operations under President Obama and the Ina Garden of Weed Enjoyment, Alyssa Mastromonaco. Hey, Alyssa. Hey, Aaron. Hold on while I mute Gordon Sondland. Oh, you're like the only one in America muting him today. Only because I'm talking to you. Otherwise, he'd be at a volume 10 out of 10. I feel very special. Um, I was just like prepping to record for the last few minutes. Has he accused Cardi B of being involved yet? No, but I'm waiting for that shoe to drop any minute. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's talk about that. We weren't planning on talking about impeachment just because, you know, it's it's kind of everywhere. But something big happened this morning. Do you mean when he got in the bus, backed it over all the president's men and then drove over them? Yeah, it was sort of a like fried green tomatoes, Tawanda type moment. It really was. Yeah. I mean, here's what I'm thinking. I what's going to happen now? What can happen now? Well, I mean, first, before anyone tweets at us, we're not like saying he's a hero or anything. He's just finally telling some fucking version of the truth and we're like here for it. Um, But I think, well, I mean, don't you think that the Southern District of New York literally has their engines running to go get Rudy? I mean, this is like, to me, this is, it's damning and terrible for the president, but it's like the end of Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, it's, here's the thing, like, he... He paints a very clear picture. And yesterday, I remember I I was on the Crooked Media um, stream on Tuesday. And uh, I just remember it being very repetitive. Like, it seemed the Republicans' defense is like, yeah, but did he say the name of the crime while he was doing it? No crime, Your Honor. Um, but here it's sort of like they've they've kind of abandoned all of it. I I watched or listened to Devin Nunes' opening statement, and it was... <laughs> It was sort of, I felt like I was standing like 
I, I don't know. I feel like if I worked in a place and Devin Nunes came in saying those things, I would be like, sir, you need to leave. And yeah, I'm calling this. I'm calling security. I'm calling security and possibly a doctor. Do you need some help, sir? Well, uh, also, I feel like today's a high day of fashion, like not to undo George Ken's bow tie, but it's like Gordon Sondland came for the show. I mean, he's got some like glorious Royal Navy suit on and Devin Nunez literally tried to dress like Bugsy. So I don't know what's going on. Yeah, but there's more stuff going on, Alyssa. I want to talk about some of the kind of the uplifting stuff, because I think at the core of this impeachment talk is this. I have this sinking feeling that even though all of this is coming out, none of the Republicans are going to do anything about it because they're all completely members of the Trump cult. Um, But I do think that there's some hopeful pieces of news that are kind of floating out there. And one of them is that there is a bill that's about to be introduced in Virginia to ratify the ERA. What does ERA stand for? You know what it stands for. (laughs) For those who are listening who may not know. Equal Rights Amendment. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Equal Rights Amendment, which was introduced uh, decades ago and sort of quietly died thanks to the efforts of like anti-feminists such as Phyllis Schlafly. I can't say her name. It's 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 a tongue twister. It sounds like how she makes me feel. Which is Schlafly. Well, Schlafly. But the, the amendment failed, but it failed with uh, three states left ne- necessary to ratify it and add it to the Constitution. Illinois and Nevada recently ratified the ERA and we're down to one. And that one could be Virginia. It's an exciting time. 40 years later. Do you think we should call the state senator who's going to introduce the bill? I feel like we could learn a lot from her. I feel like we could, too. Senator McClellan was elected to the Senate of Virginia in January 2017. Prior to her election to the Senate, Jennifer was a member of the Virginia House of Delegates for 11 years. She holds the distinction of being the first pregnant delegate in office in Virginia, which is awesome. And also, I wish that there had been more and before her, because that seems like a pretty late time in a state's age to have a pregnant delegate. But I digress. And she's about to introduce a new bill in Virginia to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Let's give her a call. Great. Hi, Senator. Yes. Hi. It's great to have you. It's Aaron here and then Alyssa. Hey there. Hi, Aaron and Alyssa. How are you? Uh, we're delighted to have you um, because you're one of the foremost experts on this exact topic that we've been super interested in for a long time. So thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Oh, sure. First of all, Senator, thank you so much for being here. We have questions. I have answers. Lots of questions. Okay. And you have answers. Good. Okay. So uh, my first question is, if the ERA does get ratified in Virginia, how will this impact the average person? So I think um, a couple of ways. First, it, it lays the groundwork for new legislation to sort of remove um laws that discriminate on the basis of sex, but also gives people another way to protect themselves against laws uh, through the courts um, that discriminate on the basis of sex. I think symbolically, it removes any doubt that men and women are treated equally by the law and our constitution and should be and need to be, and we need to remove any barriers to that reality. Uh, Why has it taken so long for the ERA to be ratified? I I don't know. (laughs) Part of what happened is 
a really good anti-campaign led by Phyllis Shafley that sort of put the brakes on by trying to tie the ERA with the culture wars and um, and Roe versus Wade and, and all of that, that that caused some conservatives uh, to pause. I mean, the ERA really started as, as a bipartisan thing that got caught up in the culture war. So that's, that's the first piece. As time went on, a lot of people just assumed either we didn't need it or assumed it had already happened. So what's interesting in Virginia, we did a whole education campaign throughout 2018 and into the 2019 session. And our our initial polling showed that a lot of people just assumed the ERA had passed or they assumed that it was covered in the 14th Amendment. And once we sort of educated people, no, it's it's not, uh, then support, you know, grew. Senator, here's a question for you. You touched on this a second ago. If the ERA ensures that a person can be discriminated on the basis of sex, does that essentially codify Road v. Wade as the law of the land? That's a uh, that's a very good question. So Roe was decided not on equal protection grounds, but on a right to privacy. And so there's every reason to believe that reproductive health would still be protected through a right to privacy. But abortion and reproductive access was never litigated under that. So on the one hand, I don't know. On the other hand, I think you can look at if there are laws that treat pregnancy different from any other medical condition, and the only reason it does so is because women get pregnant, then then you'd have a problem. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that the ERA failed is because there was an arbitrary deadline imposed on it. I think it was 1980. And so three of the states that have, or two of the states plus Virginia, assuming that it gets ratified through Virginia, uh, will have ratified it after the deadline is passed. So... In order for it to become enacted after that, my understanding is that Congress would have to remove the deadline from the ERA, from the like possibility of the ERA. If that happens, let's say Virginia ratifies it, so all the necessary 38 states have ratified the ERA, um, the deadline is removed, do you think people will challenge it legally? And will the state's rights to add amendments make it to the Supreme Court? Like what, I mean, pardon my French, but... Explain what the oncoming clusterfuck could be. <laughs> so I see, I see two different scenarios. Um, I would argue Congress couldn't put a deadline on. There's, there's no provision in the Constitution for deadline on amendments. The deadline was not in the amendment itself. Um, it's not in the language of the amendment itself. So that deadline is not something that the states are even speaking to. Um, so I think if, if Congress does not remove the deadline, then I think um, you go to court to find out, is that deadline valid at all? Um, mm-hmm. Ideally, Congress would remove the deadline because if, if they have the power to impose one, they have the power to lift it. And then I think it, it's it's a cleaner, easier road to ratification. Could somebody sue? Like, some, sure, somebody always can sue. Um, are they likely to win? I don't think so. So Virginia just turned blue. And that's a huge deal. Yes. Congratulations on, on being part of that. Thank you. Very excited. 
And a lot of people who listen to this podcast aren't from Virginia, but are probably inspired by what happened in Virginia. Can you explain a little bit about what Virginia turning blue has meant to Virginians? There's a lot of excitement. Um, So just to put it in context, I got elected first to the House of Delegates in 2005 when the House was um, 55 Republicans, 45 Democrats. I've been in the minority party my entire time. There 39 members of the House of Delegates have been elected since 2016. So I think it's two things. One, there's so many bills that a majority of Virginians favor, whether it's common sense gun control, whether it's removing discrimination against the LGBTQ community, ERA, um, uh, expanding solar energy, like broad bipartisan support. And these bills have been bottled up in committees on a party line vote. So so the first thing it means is just progress on issues that a majority of Virginians want to see progress on. Two, though, is this, this whole new crop of people who got involved in politics and inspired to run for office in response to the catastrophe that was the 2016 election, who who woke up and said, I have to do more than just vote. And I ran for the Senate um, in January of 17. I announced the Thursday after the 2016 election. And I saw a lot of those people show up and volunteer in my election who had never volunteered before. Well, now a lot of those people are elected to office. They They have been part of a blue wave that shows you, we are a government by, of, and for the people. That means government's only going to be as good as the people who choose to participate. And they all chose to participate. And now government's mm-hmm. going to be better for it. That's exciting and inspiring. And uh, is an important reminder that everybody should get involved locally and at, at the state level, too. Yes. Yeah. And particularly because the things that we do on the state and local level affects everyone's day-to-day life more than what happens in Washington. Um, and, and, so, yeah, making sure you're involved at the local and the state level is critically important. We have one last question for you. Okay. It is no question that you are a rising star in Virginia, and we've heard some sort of delicious gossip <laughs> that you may run for governor in two years. Do you want to break any news here on Hysteria? Uh, no, I don't want to break news. <laughs> um, I will say I, I am excited to have just been reelected. I am gearing up for the 2020 session, but I am very, very seriously thinking about running for governor in 2021. So stay tuned, but but not ready to announce anything now. Well, we look forward to having our McClellan bumper stickers on our car. (laughs) People, I mean, on the West Coast, they'll be like, who's that? And I'll be like, read the news. It's important. Oh, thank you, guys. (laughs) Thank you so much, Senator McClellan. And uh, good luck with the bill to ratify the ERA. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so that was super illuminating. And I'm glad that we have people like Senator McClellan in state office doing the hard work um, while we talk about the hard work. And we should all keep our eyes out to see what happens in Virginia. Yeah, I'm excited. I think it's going to be exciting. Although, like, uh, you know, I'm just I was imagining it sort of coming on a collision course between, you know, like the ERA getting ratified and then having it somehow in some twisted world end up in front of the Supreme Court. And you have like Brett fucking Kavanaugh. (laughs) Deciding. How long in, How long until there are $75 ERA sweatshirts for sale? I would not be surprised. Did anything happen in the impeachment hearing while we were on the phone? 
So all I can say is that Sondland has had a lot of water to drink, but that's about it. Hmm. Very interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. What do you think is, I mean, what do you think is going to happen? That's my question. It's like, I feel with like him? with everything, I feel like I can't, I'm watching a movie that makes no sense. I can't follow the plot. And it won't end. And it won't end. Yeah. So I guess here's what it comes down to. Like, there's no question there was a quid pro quo, right? The question that remains is only whether the Republicans think that presidents shouldn't dirty deal with foreign governments to get, like, information on political opponents in upcoming elections, Mm -hmm. right? It's just, it really comes down to whether or not the Republicans have a conscience. It does. I also think— Or compass. uh, Yeah. Anything with a C— uh, I I was actually thinking about, you know, the Hunter Biden push by Republicans about like investigating Joe Biden's kid, Joe Biden's kid, Joe Biden's kid. And it's like, guys, have you thought this one through? Do you really want people investigating public officials, kids, given who the person who is in the White House? Like, is that you mean Ivanka Chinese trademarks Trump? <laughs> yeah. And Don Jr., who I apparently finds time to run his dad's company while tweeting all day. Like Eric, like what do you want? Ki- do you want it to be that kids of public officials are investigated? Because that can happen. And I don't think There's it's o- going to end up well. There's only one person who would want children of politicians to be investigated, and that's Tiffany Trump, because she would come out (laughs) as the only unjailed Trump child. Yeah, Tiffany Trump. uh, Baron Trump. Baron Trump is not going to jail. Long may you run, Tiffany. Tiffany Tiffany and Baron are are both going to be fine. And then any possible secret children, also probably fine. We'll talk more about that offline. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, Alyssa, thank you, as always, for calling in, and uh, we'll chat more for Thanksgiving. Talk to you soon. Bye. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes, and their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I just like, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, 
<laughs> not not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ bars ultimate sampler pack. That's seven IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. We're back from a break, and I want to spend as little time as possible just making small talk and bullshitting because I'm really excited for our episode today. Like, mega excited. Like, I couldn't sleep last night. I was so excited. So, uh, <laughs> so first, um, I want to introduce the lovely women who are sharing the table with me today. First up, we have a comedian whose first album, My Dad Paid for This, came out this month. It's Megan Gailey. Hello, everybody. So glad for you to be here. Thank you. I, I couldn't never, sleep either. I've never seen you like this. I know. And the thing is, I was with Will Smith last week, and I was fine. And <laughs> you then saw Shaq at Nordstrom. I saw Shaq at Nordstrom and had a Cheesecake Factory bag and was like any other Sunday. But today, I'm... I'm I'm really excited. I'm more excited than for my own wedding. But <laughs> Coming up. Congrats on that. Um, next, she's a comedian who came out in college. Woo-hoo! It's Tian Tran. <laughs> yes. How are you doing, Tian? I'm great. I'm very. I'm also very excited. <laughs> you can't tell right now, but I'm holding my body very tightly. <laughs> um, and finally, a guest who needs no introduction, but I'll give her one anyway because this is an audio medium. She's an activist, writer, speaker, icon. And you can buy her new book, The Truth Will Set You Free, but first, it will piss you off. It's Gloria Steinem. Hello. Welcome, Gloria. Hello, hello. And I'm excited. Am I allowed to be yeah, excited? Yeah, yes, okay. we love that. We love that. Um, so, Gloria, you're the first guest we've ever had whose name I use as hyperbole in arguments <laughs> when I'm being sarcastic. Like, okay, Gloria Steinem. <laughs> okay. I just want to know if you win the argument. Always. Okay. Almost, All right. almost, okay. al- almost always, if I get to an okay, Gloria Steinem. So, Gloria, your new book, The Truth Will Set You Free, But First It Will Piss You Off, it's a collection of kind of quotes and wisdom that you've amassed over your long career. What inspired you to write this book now? Well, I love quotes. You know, I think you can take a good quote, pour water on it, and it becomes a novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I also have quotes from friends in there. Mm -hmm. The quotes are useful for marching with, and I think we need to march a lot right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, well, why not? And I I wrongly thought it would be easy. I thought, well, (laughs) you know, all these quotes, I can just put them in a book. No, wrong. I had to do an introduction for the whole book, an essay for each chapter. Chapter. It turned out to be much more work than I thought. <laughs> but there's also a couple of blank pages at the end, so absolutely everybody can put their own quotes and their favorites. Yeah, it seemed um, two thoughts as I was reading it. First of all, these are some great free signs for the next Women's March, for <laughs> sure. Um, secondly, I feel like you invented tweeting, like you invented <laughs> being good at Twitter. Does it ever feel like that? Because so much of what you wrote was always so simple and clear and concise. Do you ever think of yourself as a little bit like the mother of Twitter? 
It, no, I don't. Yeah, actually. don't take that on. <laughs> like, you, don't, you actually don't want that on your back. <laughs> Although they did, they did allow me to put one Twitter quote in there. I don't know if you noticed, which is uh, sort of directed at Trump, which is uh, Twitter. The past tense of Twitter is "twat you idiot." And you... <laughs> <laughs> I like that That's a lot. Great. <laughs> so I want to get into it right away because as I was reading your book, I kept wanting to like have a conversation with it, like. Ah, I want, and then this. So, in your book, you write about the importance of working with people in different age groups. I think that you put it as like you have pairs of genes older than some of the women that you work with. Yes, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> right. And I don't even believe my own age, but I, but I do think it's very important, and that age segregation is as bad as any other kind of segregation, mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of very simple reasons. I mean, one is that. Uh, I probably have more hope than a lot of the younger women I work with all the time because I remember when it was worse. Mm-hmm. And they're mad as hell because it's bad now. And so we need each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I worry that there are age-segregated communities, mm-hmm. for instance, and there's so much in our society that does that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about it in light of—have you heard of the phrase, OK, boomer? Yes, but boomers yeah. are also right. from right. the past. Yeah, right. Right. It's it's sort of um, it's sort of become a dismissive catch-all for young people to express their resentment for older generations, and it's become really zeitgeisty right now because it seems like there's a lot of built-up resentment among a younger generation toward an older generation that they think dealt us a hand of cards that is not very fun for us to play. So, how do you? As somebody who aspires to work with people who are of different age groups, how do you overcome that sort of built-in resistance? Well, you get to know each other, first of all. You know, if you're uh, younger and you're going to an event which no older person would ever be able to experience, invite an older person. And if you're older and you're going to some elevated event that no young people are at, invite a younger person. I mean, there's no magic to anything except actually knowing each other. Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of, I don't know if this is exactly relevant, but it makes me think of Native American groups that say that the very old and the very young have the most in common because they're closest to the unknown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something mystical about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's pivot to the current state of America. I just finished Margaret Atwood's The Testaments. This week, I read it in under 24 hours. I've been texting oh, Megan about it. She's wonderful. That. I have not read that, but anything by Margaret Atwood, it has to be good. When I was reading it, uh, I was reading it and then your book, like, back to back. And Atwood's, uh, the, the country in the book is obviously a very cynical, scary place. And your, the feeling I get from your book is very optimistic. So... Here's a quote from Atwood's latest book. Um, How tedious is a tyranny in the throes of enactment? It's always the same plot. Do you feel like you're watching a tyranny in the throes of enactment now? And how do you maintain optimism through that? Well, I'm not sure that we are completely in tyranny yet because it's only a third of the country that supports the current regime. And we must remember that Trump lost by six million votes and he's only there because of the Electoral College and now we're getting rid of the, you know, we're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. But I think she's absolutely right in everything she says because tyrannies begin, all of them begin with controlling women's bodies as the means of reproduction. From, our, you know, the right wing here to, 
you know, the right wing in Brazil yeah. to you reference hit, Nazi Germany to yeah. Nazi yeah. Germany. Yeah, that that uh, we we somehow think of women's issues as narrow as opposed to connected to everything. Mm-hmm. So the first step is always controlling women's bodies in order to control how many workers, how many soldiers, which and to keep races separate or castes as in India separate. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it it really is serious. I mean, that is, she's right. That is where tyranny begins. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you maintain a sense of optimism among all that, though? Well, I mean, why would on earth would we let people take hope away from us? Hope is within our control. Hope is a form of planning, I believe, is a quote in there. (laughs) (laughs) So it it would be insane and suicidal, uh, you know, to, to, to give up hope. It's ridiculous. Right. That's within our control. Mm-hmm. Fuck them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> how do you how do you take care of yourself in terms of like being fatigued from everything? Because I feel at times that like we're in a we're in a place where it's the news and the bad news is so is so overwhelming that it is hard to hold on to that hope. So like, well, it, we are the majority. I am sitting here with you. This is how I take care of myself. Mm. I mean, you know. There, literally, at most, it's a third of the country that wants to live with the old hierarchy. The rest has gone along with and learned from and been expanded by all of the social justice movements. So now if you look at the public opinion polls, you know, there's an agreement and the environmental movement and so on. Mm -hmm. But that more or less third... I really were born with an old hierarchy. They are mad. You know, there's the the typical kind of middle-aged white guy who says to me when I'm on the road, uh, you know, a black woman took my job. Mm-hmm. All right. And I always say to him, who said it was your job? You know, because <laughs> it's his sense of entitlement mm-hmm. that is the problem. What worries me is that we will stew ourselves into whatever while watching the bad news and not know we are the majority. Mm-hmm. If we get the majority out or we will become obsessed with converting because women's idea of of governance kind of is the family and you don't, you know, reject anybody out of the family. Mm-hmm. So we become obsessed with thinking we have to convert other people mm-hmm. when, in fact, we have the majority. And if we organize and move with the majority, we win. You talk a lot about being on the road, and all four of us here, we're all Midwestern gals that have been sprinkled about. And, and <laughs> we all, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Toledo, Ohio. We got a Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Wisconsin. Wisconsin, Indiana here. And so we all now live, the three of us live in Los Angeles. We've lived in New York, some of us as well. And... Do you think when you're when you're quote unquote on the road, it it helps you restore your hope? Because sometimes I'm afraid that we get stuck in this bubble on the coast and we're like, we're right. And we're the only ones that are right. But then when I go back to Indianapolis, sometimes I'll meet people and I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, there's a lot of really wonderful people that are fighting in these red states Mm -hmm. that are doing a lot more important work than I'm doing telling jokes in Los Angeles. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I want. I would argue with you that jokes are truly revolutionary. <laughs> okay, I'll <laughs> but, <do> that. <laughs> but it is, it is important, I think, and specifically in the election, that we go back to the states where we came from and we know and help the good folks there, who are probably the majority too, to get out the vote and do whatever they need to do. We need to keep those connections because we have an understanding of that place we came from and we have a credibility there. Mm-hmm. That's so good to hear because it is so easy to just cut those people off. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't spoken to so many folks back from where, like Pennsylvania, 
in years because I've just you, you just speak to my fiance. <laughs> I know I only the only other person of color that you knew growing up. <laughs> totally, <laughs> we played basketball together. Um, but it, it is so important because I've kind of just like just through social media and seeing their opinions, I've written them off completely. And instead of reaching out and having a conversation, I've just decided mm-hmm. to be like, no. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, just as a for instance, the last time I went back to Toledo, Ohio, where I come from, uh, the high school I went to, which was an enormous big Midwestern high school where the only clear rule was you had to stop playing football when you were 22 because they were so obsessed with football and they had the best team and they played Texas every year and so on. Okay, so now what is the problem? Sex trafficking. Girls from that high school are being loaded into cross-country trucks and sex trafficked. And, you know, there are women in the Ohio State Legislature working on this. You know, so, you know, wherever we go, the current problems are current. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we know the people in the community, uh, you know, we we can be more effective there. Mm -hmm. How do you see, like, I think there's a lot of conversation about reaching across the aisle speaking to other folks who have um, opposing views to you. But how do you kind of negotiate sitting down with someone who doesn't see your humanity? And like, is it worth that emotional labor to try and sit and like convert them to your sort of thinking? Well, I don't know. I would trust your instinct on whether it is worthwhile or not, you know, because you kind of sense whether right. you can communicate with this person or not. Like I'm thinking of um, like when Trevor Noah sat down with um, Tommy, Tommy, Lauren on The Daily Show. Yeah. And everyone applauded that as such this like amazing opportunity to reach across the aisle and talk to each other. But to me, I was like, it felt like he was just trying to convince her that like Black Lives Matter. And she just was not. Do you think it's like a good faith, bad faith thing, though? Like you can sit there are plenty of people who have conservative viewpoints Mm -hmm. who, you know, or you get a sense or you like intuitively know are operating in good faith. Like they just want what they think is best for Mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. And then there are people that are bad faith actors. Tommy Lauren Mm -hmm. have malicious intent. Exactly. And, Mm -hmm. And I think it seems like there's a differentiation between where it's like, I know you're full of shit. I'm not going to, mm-hmm. I'm not going to like lend you my clout. I'm not going to like mm. bring you any visibility. Yeah. But I mean, then again, I am not. Uh, well, you know, I would kind of trust your instinct mm-hmm. about it because if you feel totally wiped out and annihilated by this person, then why bother? Mm-hmm. If you feel there is some sense of connection, there's some, you know, things on which you share emotional feelings then try. But I think we have, that's the purpose of our instinct. Mm-hmm. I mean, my best instinct story is if it walks like a duck and looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and you think it's a pig, it's a pig. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good point. Um, There's also people that bring out the worst in us. So it's like, yeah, I could go into it being like, I am I have all these points and then I sit down with them and I'm like, your shirt is ugly. And it's like, well, that's not why I'm here. But like, they just bring out this like the mean girl inside of me that's beating to get out. This is why I think we need to form like a chain letter or union or something where women band together. This is just half a joke. We band together (laughs) and we can like tap each other to be like, you're going to talk to my uncle. I would love that. Like (laughs) you 
<laughs> yeah, well, that's 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 quite useful because yeah. we can sometimes see that somebody else could communicate with somebody that yes. we couldn't. That's called organizing. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. right I'm right. so good with uncles yeah. too. You know, oh, I'll be yeah. like Ken Burns Civil War. Let's go. Um, like I get, I like they like. I would me. send you in for an uncle. Yeah, absolutely, for an uncle intervention. Yeah. Megan, Megan Gailey is our gal. Just kind of pivoting a little bit. Uh, you've been active in the feminist movement for a very long time. Um, and you've seen a lot of victories and you've seen a lot of things that haven't quite been victories yet, uh, to put it optimistically. What uh, victories to you have felt like the the biggest and the ones that you've been the most proud of? And what battles are still being fought that you really are hoping we can see a victory from mm-hmm. soon? Well, I think it's more proportional with almost everything, because in the beginning, just to understand that women could have an identity of their own. We could have our own names, which was how Ms. got in, invented, mm. uh, that it, um, we did not have to <clears throat> have our husband's identity. We could have equal pay, uh, that uh, the basis of democracy was governing our own bodies, men and women. That's where democracy starts. That was like electrifying. <laughs> I mean, I went to uh, an abortion hearing in New York to cover it for New York Magazine, And for the first time in my life, I saw women and heard women standing up and telling the truth about an experience that was 100% female, that was 100% illegal, uh, that one in three American women had experienced, which is abortion, and yet was secret and criminal and dangerous. And they were standing up and testifying to it. It totally blew my mind. And it suddenly made me realize, hey, you know, this is crazy, the system we have. So that is such a sanity-saving experience. But that then, you know, the next steps become convincing other people. You know, that was a hearing that was counter to a New York State legislature, legislature hearing in which 14 men and one nun were uh, invited to testify at abortion. I mean, you know, right. Oh, abortion right. experts, all of them. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> So there, be, there came to be speakouts and uh, you know underground networks, and that was exhilarating, and it became ever more exhilarating as we came to understand that the right to control one's own body is the literally the basis of democracy. So it's a progression. It's like a flash of light, and then it illuminates more of the room and more of the room and more of the room, and suddenly you realize, hey, there are other people here. You know, maybe we can actually win, and I can live here. Mm-hmm. How does that play into, like, the backlash cycle, though? Like, are is there ever a time when an issue gets so, I don't want to say overexposed, but so exposed all of a sudden in such a bright flash of light that people who are opponents of it really yes, overreact well, you and push don't, it back? You don't have a front lash without a backlash. Mm-hmm. A backlash is a tribute. If they're not backlashing, you probably did something wrong. <laughs> right? I love a backlash yeah. is a tribute. Yeah. I really like that <laughs> turn of phrase. No, but I mean it's you know it's the nature of change. Yeah, it's 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 an evolution of gathering more and more people, and and it's fun to think of tactics. I have to say, <laughs> the, the two things are the 
most fun in my life are editorial meetings <laughs> and organizing. Because you think, oh, if we did this, maybe that would happen. If we got this person to talk to that person, you know, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what backlash? I mean, do you think we're in the middle of a backlash right now? Yes, we are in the middle of a huge backlash. And the backlash is in the White House. That's mm-hmm. the difference, even though it's only a third of the country. There it is in, in the leadership. And this is dangerous. There's no tell. I mean, you know, the judges alone, the environment alone, you know, mm-hmm. we don't have to say how dangerous this is. However, it's also true that we are woke in a way that I have never seen before, because we see everything that's wrong up there. And we understand that this does not represent the majority. And wherever I go, I see people organizing in a way they never did before. I mean, even the march right after the inauguration mm-hmm. was the single biggest march in history. It was not only in Washington. It was in tiny little towns in Arkansas. It was in Zambia. <laughs> you know, it was by the gate in Berlin. You know, I mean, you know, I've never, never, ever seen that before. So... The realization that was just a few people in 1970, in the 1970s, is now the majority. Hmm. Will the majority win? I don't know. I mean, there are plenty of circumstances in history. Uh, For instance, the election of Hitler, who was indeed elected, Mm -hmm. uh, in which the majority didn't win. I'm not saying that it's not dangerous in a struggle, Mm -hmm. but it is also part of the process. And the worst thing we can do is let ourselves be defeated by discouragement. Mm -hmm. Do you ever yell? Well, you know, I'm a a Midwesterner, like you. So in general, I find that you have to be on LSD to know we're having an emotion. (laughs) (laughs) You communicate in such a like... It's so it's lovely, but I'm like, wow. I wonder if yeah, if you've ever screamed, and I guess we don't. <laughs> Have you ever screamed? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The okay. Part, well, well, maybe the Midwest got better after I left. I, well, I think my parents are from New York, you know, so uh, I think that they, explains everything. They in raised New York, me to they, scream. I made a list of things that people in New York did that made me afraid of them when I first arrived. <gasps> what was on that list? Well, they everything. said things. They said things three times that in the Midwest we wouldn't even say once. You know, they didn't. Eat standing up out of the refrigerator, you know? <laughs> oh, it's funny. My Midwestern dad taught me that whoever yells first in an argument loses. Ooh, also, yeah, I realized true, way too way too late in my like teenagerhood, I was like, why is my dad always winning arguments with me? It was because the more hyped I would get, the quieter he yeah. would talk. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very interesting. Basically. That's really that's good. Interesting. Until he was basically. I was like, Dad, take No, I'm going to remember that. That's very smart. Also, there was a a woman in the Midwest who said to me a smart thing. She was an executive, a big executive, and when she got angry, she cried. Now, that's something that happens, I think, to a lot of women, right? Mm -hmm. And then then you're afraid to get angry because you're going to cry. And she said to me, okay, she said, "I, I get angry, I cry. I say to my male colleagues, and she was the top executive, you know, this, I am not sad. Yeah. I am crying because I am angry. This is the way I get angry. And she just talked through it. I said, that's genius. Uh-huh. You know, so. I want that on a shirt. Just, I know. 
I want that I'm crying because I'm angry. I want that t-shirt. Yeah, no, but, right. I mean, why? what's wrong with crying? Yeah, because I, I cry when I get angry and the instinct is I get embarrassed. Because yes. I'm like, yeah. oh, they think I'm being vulnerable or and feeling sadness mm-hmm. and weakness. And honestly, this is the closest I could be to strangling them. Right. Yes. Well, and, and actually, <laughs> you're getting rid of stress chemicals when you cry. If yeah. men cried, they would live longer. So, you know, why not? Why not just embrace it? Yeah. I'm a beautiful crier, too. Yeah. So I do embrace Sometimes, like, it does make my eyes pop. I send you to cry in front of my uncle. Like, cry in front of my uncle and get him to agree to vote for pro-choice candidates. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the history of the feminist movement and the possibly unearned reputation it has had in the past of being too white or too dominated by white women. In your experience with the movement, how has it become more inclusive? Mm-hmm. And what do, you, what, what do you think is positively happening now to make it even more inclusive? Well, I think it depends what you count as the movement. And sometimes people, uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If it isn't white, it isn't feminist. Mm-hmm. Actually, in in point of fact and and public opinion polls, black women have always been more feminist and a bigger proportionately part of the women's movement than their part of the population. Mm -hmm. When Ms. Magazine did a poll in an early issue in the early 1970s, it was the first ever—well, it was a Lewis Harris poll, but we printed it, and it was the first— poll of women's opinions on women's issues. Mm -hmm. There were some 60% of black women who supported the women's movement and all the issues and only 30 some percent of white women. And it is still now, if you look at the vote, Mm -hmm. 96% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. And 30, what was it, 51 percent percent of white women yeah. voted for Trump. Yeah, that's, right. that, that number's tattooed so on I, So I fear that it's definitional. <laughs> and the reason I especially feel that is because in all the 20 or 25 years I was wandering around speaking somewhat accidentally, just because we knew each other and I was afraid to speak by myself and so on, uh, with... Uh, Margaret Sloan or Dorothy Pittman Hughes or mm-hmm. Flo Kennedy, the great Flo Kennedy. I mean, we were, you know, white and black speaking teams. And when there was a press conference, as there usually was even on a campus, say, before our speech, they would ask me about the women's movement and Flo, say, about the civil rights movement. And we would kind of let it happen. And I would explain, listen, Flo is 10 years older than I am. She is my teacher in terms of feminism. I'm learning feminism from her. Why are you not asking her? Mm -hmm. So I fear that it's definitional. Mm -hmm. It's our eyes that are the problem, not what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. So do you think that as, you know, I'm white, Megan is white, do you think as white women who are also feminists that it's maybe our job to elevate other people, to elevate people of color when we're given a microphone? Uh, Well, yeah, I would say yes, but they don't need elevating. They're fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I wouldn't <clears throat> I wouldn't give white women the power to say to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. I would just say if you're doing a show or a photograph that represents the women's movement, it shouldn't be all white, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just by policy. Just don't do it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you just the first question is also do do you do we know each other? I remember in the past, I've forgotten what decade it was, but anyway, in New York, there was a huge 
uh, black women's group very important and very influential and a big Jewish women's group. And they were trying to do something together and it wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. So they invited uh, a feminist conflict resolution expert who had become that because she had run two women's centers, so she'd become a <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, to figure out what to do. And she said, well, do your two presidents know each other? And the answer really was no. She said, well, tell them to have lunch together every week for a month and it'll happen. And it did. Wow. So, you know, who do we, you know, have lunch with? Who do mm -hmm. we go to, you know, the and... When I came home from India, uh, where I lived for a couple of years when I first got out of college, I got mad on my own behalf, if you know what I mean, because there I had seen, of course, India has caste and other problems, but still you see a huge array of skin colors all the time. And when I came home to my neighborhood in Washington, I realized that I could go snow blind there. <laughs> you know, every, what's going on here? I'm deprived. Why, why am I deprived of seeing everybody? Mm -hmm. So I think it helps if white women get mad on our own behalf, not like we're Lady Bountiful, including somebody else. Uh -huh. No, we're mad because we're deprived. Uh -huh. In the book, I think it's so interesting, and I'm paraphrasing. You're like, we don't need to include women of color. This is their movement. They mm -hmm. need to include us. Well, and we, and first, you know, it's all of our movement. Mm -hmm. If it isn't for everybody, it's not feminism. Mm -hmm. But the first question usually is, do we know each other? Mm -hmm. As a woman of color, I've growing up the feminist movement, even learning about it felt incredibly like very black and white. And since I've grown up and, and it is about getting to know each other, like I've moved out here and I have found community in like Latinx communities, Asian American communities. It's like everyone is doing the work. We're just siloed. And I think it feels like sometime it is this white feminism that gets this phrase that gets thrown around is because the media focuses so much on, you know, very you know, white figureheads. And, and so it feels sometimes that a lot of the stories are being erased. And so I love that you're saying like, it is part of like, it, they've always been there. They actually started the movement. Um, but it, it can be frustrating sometimes that when you look up and see, it's like a lot of white women who are kind of not, not taking center stage, but, but the media is kind of like mm -hmm. putting that on them. No. And that is a special problem for me. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and uh, the first big uh, article uh, was in Newsweek about the women's movement nationally. They suddenly decided, wait, there's something interesting going on here. It's called the women's movement. Anyway, so they... <laughs> Have you they, heard of women? <laughs> well, it turns We're out moving. there's a lot of them and they've got opinions. So, uh, so they did a cover story and they asked me to pose for the cover. I said, no, are you kidding me? No, that's the whole idea is I'm not going to, you know... There's either several of us or I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. And they took a telephoto photograph at a rally and put it on the cover anyway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I felt done in, and I'm sure a lot of people saw it and thought I had cooperated with it. Mm -hmm. I complained and said, won't you publish a letter saying I didn't cooperate? And they say, no, we would never undercut our own story. You know, so... <laughs> <laughs> we want Wait, we... women to have a voice, but not... A... <laughs> right. Not, not when it pertains to them. Yeah. <laughs> Opinions just not about <laughs> us. But we just have to remember that that the media, you know, there are many gradations, and some is some are very accurate, some are not. But the media are not real life. Real life is real life. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think is the most urgent issue facing women in America today? 
Well, I think that issue, I think that question should be answered by each woman. Mm -hmm. Because if she's trying to get out of a violent home, that is the most you know, important issue. Mm -hmm. If she's trying to get custody of her child, if she's trying to get equal pay, uh, if she, I don't know, you know, yeah. I mean, each woman has to answer that for herself. Mm -hmm. Collectively, it is that we have governance over our own bodies. Mm -hmm. That, you know, because that is where every uh, dictatorship starts with controlling reproduction. So it, it, that's collectively, and that in, includes violence against women. Mm -hmm. So because if now, if you add up all the forms of violence, whether it's female infanticide or child marriage or uh, domestic violence here, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all, all the sexualized violence in war mm -hmm. zones, you know, all the forms of violence together, now for the first time that we, are, that we know of, there are fewer females on planet Earth than males. Hmm. And this is dangerous. Why is that? I mean, why is it that, that there's fewer females? Because, because of the violence against yeah. women. Yeah. Wow. I did I not mean, know I that. Did not yeah. know that. There, there's a wonderful book called Sex and World Peace, which, you know, explores this in every country in the world. I mean, female infanticide alone, because of son preference, is, is a huge problem. But there are all these other forms of violence. Mm -hmm. So it is crucial that we stand up and say that and uh, that we fight whatever form it comes in. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, anti-female violence probably is number one. Mm -hmm. Are there places in the world that you feel like they've gotten it right? Well, there, there are especially places in the past. Okay. okay. And some of it is still in the present. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the cultures that were here before patriarchal Europeans showed up and, and are still here, mm -hmm. their languages by and large did not have gender. There was not mm -hmm. he and she. Women controlled their own fertility, decided when and whether to have children with herbs, abortifacient. I mean, that was mm -hmm. it. Uh, and that seems to have been true of old cultures in India, in Africa, all over the world. So it, it's kind of comforting to me to remember that patriarchy and racism uh, and colonialism, which is, you know, all mm -hmm, part of the mm -hmm, same mm -hmm. thing, uh, are relatively new in human history. Mm -hmm. If we learned history that way, it would help a lot. Yeah. But there are two things, history and the past, and they are not the same. Okay, so <laughs> history, the way we learn history is, is also political. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, there's they've done research into what happens when societies are lopsided and there's too many men, like it becomes more violent. And, you know, they've also um, researched, I guess, primates where it's matriarchal. Do you believe that if women were in charge of everything, we'd be more peaceful? Or do you think power is corrupting enough that we would end up the same way? I don't believe that any group should be in power. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're all one species, whether they're primates or us or whoever it is, we're each unique as we arrive in the world with this combination of heredity and environment that could never have happened before and could never happen again, right? And we are we share our humanity. So any any group dominating another is a mistake. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, so here's something that I think about a lot when I read old feminist texts because I'm very fun at parties. <laughs> um, you know, our understanding of gender 
has changed dramatically in the last 30 years and it continues to evolve and ideas that were kind of fringe ideas in you know 1990 are now becoming very mainstreamed and so non-binary people trans people mm-hmm. people who mm. choose other genders besides male and female people who live different ways how do people who do not fit under the banner of male or female fit into the women's movement well they are the women's but i mean we're trying to get rid of gender we invented gender we invented race, and they're deep, and we can't, you know, pretend they're not deep, and they don't influence us. But, you know, most of human history did not have either one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why go along with it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the world is divided into two kinds of people, those who divide everybody into two and those who don't. <laughs> <laughs> and we are the—so I'm very heartened to see the challenges to gender— and and the the challenges to racial hierarchy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, without downplaying how crucial those forces still are in our lives, we they are fictions. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel tension though of like between being proud of being a woman and understanding that your construction of woman is completely fake? <laughs> like, I mean, my constru- I mean, not yours specifically, but I think about that a lot. Where it's like, I like. I like being a woman. I like dressing the way I dress and I like putting on makeup and I like wearing high heeled shoes, but also like gender is a construct and we must, we must take it down. Like Mm -hmm. how, how do you balance those two things? Uh, Well, I guess that's interesting. I'm trying to be honest here. If I looked in my closet, (laughs) I, I, which I did the other day to sort clothes, I discovered I had no skirts. Oh, uh, and okay, that was a response. <laughs> <laughs> uh, except evening skirts, maybe, but I mean, no, no more. And that just happened over time, just because wearing pants was more comfortable, or and I didn't like to wear high heels because they hurt my feet or something. So I just think we find our own. I think body decoration is a form of self-expression, mm-hmm. and uh, people, human beings all over the world use it as a form of... If you look online at the OMO people, O-M-O, this is a a group of people living in Africa, an ancient and still existing group of people, who men and women decorate themselves every day, paint themselves beautifully, you know, twine flowers and I don't know what in there. I mean, do look it up. O M O on Google. I'm going to right, right gonna, now. So I, you know, I think that the body decoration is is universal, and I think there you see that both men and women decorate their bodies in whatever way they think is fitting. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have Google image search pulled up, and you're right. Indeed, their <laughs> body decorations are beautiful. I I think it's so exciting, too, to see that there is like a movement of like kind of queering the narrative and trying to deconstruct gender. And I just I would love I would wish that we could impart that onto children as soon as they're born, that they can self-express in whatever way and stop trying to be so rigid about constructs Mm. and roles and like I always think about like gender reveals and how that's so like you can be a truck or a or a little ladybug like those are the only <laughs> options on your cake no that is that yeah. is totally crazy and, and <laughs> you have to explain gender reveal parties to me oh. first oh do you want to do i'd it, love to okay Tian, explain gender reveal parties. gender reveal parties are parties where everyone like 
the couple invites everyone over and they have like a surprise moment to reveal the gender of the unborn child. And it's always color coded. It's like if it's a boy, it's blue. Oh, if, yeah. If it's a girl, it's pink. But that's not gender. That's I yeah, sex. Yeah, sex. Right. But no, they right. call it a gender because reveal. they don't want to say sex because they're all weird. <laughs> yeah. Say sex. But they want to have a party about their child. But we're going to focus genitalia. on the genitalia. <laughs> yes, and, and actually, even at the level of sex, there are children who are born intersex. Yeah. Right. So I I mean I'm just saying I, you know what? I would love to see a gender reveal party where they cut open a marble cake and they're like, Oh, the baby is okay, well XXY, that's an okay thing and the baby's gonna be great. No, the reveal is it's a baby human. Yes. <laughs> I know. How great is that? Okay. I mean, imagine going to a gender reveal party and they're like, Kitten? I'm gonna have a kitten. That's a, that's a party I wanna go to. I would go to a kitten party for sure. As I'm thinking about this, you know, we are so honored to have you here today and then you come in and we ask you these like pretty heavy questions do you ever tire of that like do you ever go to an interview and be like just ask me what I like to eat and drink <laughs> no that's kind of boring I mean I'm okay. glad to tell you but it's not that interesting <laughs> no no I think this is to me it's infinitely interesting because it is uh hopeful it's mm -hmm. connected to everything you begin to see that we don't have to be in a hierarchy. We could be in a circle. That's the, you know, primordial way of organizing. Why not? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's the, uh, it provides the answer to all kinds of things that currently don't have an answer, like what, I don't know, um, what is the best f way of stimulating the economy? You know, mm -hmm. when people go to Wall Street, actually the best way would be equal pay mm -hmm. because we're going to spend it. We're not going to put it in a Swiss bank account. We're yeah. going to be, you know, so equal pay by race and sex would be, but it's, it's, it's not, it's not discussed. Or when we're looking at uh, groups in other countries and judging who they are and should we have relationships with them and so on. If they're gen way gender polarized, we know they're violent. Mm -hmm. If the less gender polarized, I mean, the terrorist groups are always yeah. very gender polarized. Mm -hmm. If they are way less gender, they're more likely to be democratic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Gloria does not shoot the shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, in your book, you're talking about, uh, talk, speaking of gender polarization, you talked about uh, the happiest groups of people being married men and unmarried women. Mm -hmm. uh, we know we have a lot of male listeners. So how can men help make that feel a little bit more equal if they care about their female partners? Well, they can be partners, you know. I mean, they can be equal parents. I mean, the way that men get to be whole human beings as little boys and as grown-ups is to develop those human qualities that are wrongly called feminine. Mm -hmm. And the way we get to be whole people is to develop the ones wrongly called masculine because mm -hmm. they're all human. Mm -hmm. So uh, actually, if men develop all those human qualities... We figured out once that they would live five years longer. This is not a bad offer, mm -hmm. you know, right? <laughs> because the 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 deaths that are associated with the masculine role of speeding and violence and guns and you know whatever tension, if you do away with them, they would live longer. Mm -hmm. We got to start putting PSAs out. We <laughs> just on. order a bunch of commercials. Do you want to live five years long? Just like a, <laughs> like a car salesman. <laughs> Chill out, man. I think you know more and more men are yeah. actually, mm -hmm. but there is this. Uh, a third of the country or, you know, role-addicted, race-superiority-addicted group 
that, I mean, they didn't invent it. They got born into it, but they can't seem to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And probably only attrition will make the difference. Mm. So I want to talk about, you were talking about the, the Newsweek cover, and it made me really want to hear you dish a little bit about public figures that you've interacted with over the years. Are there any in particular that stick out as being very disappointing to you? Like you had expectations and then they just just came in way underneath. They bowed well, A lot of them, I don't know if people remember. I mean, David Suskind, does anybody remember David Suskind? I know the name. No. <laughs> no. I'm going to look him up Wait. now, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, David Suskind. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there are lots of, of male allies, too, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darren Walker, who's head of the Ford Foundation, is definitely a male ally. Frank Thomas, who used to be head of the, you know, is a male ally. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, assholes concentrated in Fox News, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, and mm-hmm. in and around the White House. I like that for their tagline. Fox News, asshole concentration. Yeah. <laughs> 100% concentrated asshole. I mean, I think about... Um, there have been a couple times where I've met male politicians that were supposedly like on women's side. And I just remember getting a vibe from them that it was all like a show. You mm-hmm. know, like when I was in a conversation with them, it's like I could feel the like, OK, little girl vibes emanating off of them. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's still something that we see a lot among supposedly progressive politicians that are men? Yes, I think so. Yeah, because they see it politically, but they don't see it in their own lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I remember sitting in a, a Senate hearing, and I've forgotten exactly who the panel of senators were, but there was the daughter of one of the senators sitting next to me. It was very shy, and and <laughs> she would tiptoe every few minutes up or, you know, hour up to her father and say, you make, in, whisper in his ear, you make me ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So families can have a lot of influence. And then just tiptoe back? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. She was really shy. She couldn't yeah. do it in public, but he knew. He knew. Oh, wow. right. That's incredible. What an icon. But also, if you, if you look at uh, in families of inherited wealth, hmm. it's striking <sighs> what happens to that wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the family business and the power in that family generally speaking, goes to the brothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the women uh, have some money, but the question is, who? and if there's no brother, then the family influences to, to get a brother, to get a, a son-in-law who mm-hmm. runs the business. Mm-hmm. And there are tons of businesses, and I think sometimes the New York Times and restaurants, sort of, you know, that are inherited in this way, mm-hmm. in a completely patriarchal way. They pass through women and men get them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, you, you had a quote in here and I want to, I want to get it exactly right. Cause I remember reading it and being like, holy shit. <laughs> um, basically I, I'll paraphrase you. You said that inherited wealth robs people of the dignity of hard work. Can you expand a little bit on what that means? Uh, yeah, I mean, in general, just in my own acquaintance, I would say I've seen more people damaged by inherited wealth mm. than helped by inherited mm-hmm. wealth. I think my life would have been different and not as good if I had inherited money. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you learn from the crazy jobs you do and having to survive and you meet people and, 
You know, I I really think uh, inheritance is viewed as a blessing when it's often a curse. Mm -hmm. If you really look at the people and what happens mm -hmm. to them generation mm -hmm. upon generation. Gloria, I want to close by asking you um, if you could impart one piece of knowledge 300 years into the future, just like assure that it would just be beamed forward in time, what would that be? Well, I'm sitting here thinking because I'm here with two comics and my, you know, life's ambition is to be a stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> we can make this happen. Yeah. <laughs> Easily. Easily. <laughs> you can show up and get some stage time yeah. <laughs> pretty much anywhere. That I would say that it would be helpful to remember that laughter is actually the only free emotion. Mm. I mean, obviously, you can make people afraid, clearly. You can also believe you're in love if you're dependent and enmesh long enough because you, in order to survive, you enmesh with someone. But laughter it just happens. And therefore, uh, you know, it happens when two things come together and make a third, when you have an idea, when, you know, Einstein supposedly said that he had to be careful while he was shaving. If he had a new idea, he laughed and cut himself. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I would say in honor to both of you, all of you, um, that if we just remember not to go any place or with any people who won't let us laugh, that we will be following freedom. That is great. Um, okay, Gloria Steinem, <laughs> non-sarcastically. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming by today, Tien and Megan. Also, thanks for joining us for the conversation. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with The Hills We'll Die On. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt at 3 a.m., at all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hey, everybody, a little bit of housekeeping before we get to the hills. First of all, thank you to everybody who helped chip in for our goal to reach a million dollars raised for Fair Fight, Stacey Abrams' program. But we've got a bigger one for you now. We want to hit $2 million by the end of 2019. So if you want to help battle voter suppression in battleground states next year, you can go to votesaveamerica.com slash fairfight to pitch in. In Kentucky, here's some things that we did. Uh, in Kentucky, Fair Fight worked with the Kentucky Democratic Party to prevent the state from moving 175,000 names to the inactive voter list. And after this year's election, Democrat Andy Bouchard is the apparent governor-elect beating Republican Governor Matt Bevin by just 5,000 votes. In Louisiana, Fair Fight funded a voter protection program for the November 16th governor's election, which included deploying poll watchers and running a voter protection hotline. Democratic incumbent John Bell Edwards won the race by 2.6 percent. Since this summer, Fair Fight has put teams on the ground in Virginia, Florida, Michigan, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. They're currently hiring in Arizona, New Hampshire, Texas, and North Carolina. Next, they're planning to get teams in Iowa, Alabama, South Carolina, Minnesota, Nevada, Wisconsin, woo, and Maine. Thanks to all of you who helped reach our $1 million goal last month. This is the last push of 2019, so if you haven't pitched in yet or you know people who would want to help, 
Or if you want to just give a gift to Fair Fight as somebody else's Christmas present, which is sort of like a chaotic good sort of thing to do, um, you can do that too. You can help pitch in and help us finish out 2019 by hitting $2 million. And go to votesaveamerica.com slash fairfight to chip in what you can. And finally, thank you to the truly disturbing number of people who sent us bad holiday movie pitches. We're going over the entries now, and there will be some great content around your bad pitches coming your way in December, you goddamn lunatics. Okay, we're back from our appointments to get Gloria Steinem tattoos on our forearms. <laughs> we all have matching Gloria Steinem tattoos. We just got it off the street. It's It was very dangerous. Uh, yeah, we we'll, might, we'll get sick. But we, we'll get sick. <laughs> we're going to get sick, but it's worth it. It was totally worth it. Um, we're back with the part of the show where we take really strong stances about things that don't matter at all. It's the hills we'll die on. Let's get started with our listener hill. Uh, this is Allison from Baltimore, Maryland, and the hill that I will die on is one that John Lovett has actually brought up, but I promise I've been dying on the hill longer. The baby on board stickers that go on cars are the <laughs> dumbest pieces of shit that ever have been created. I am not driving around looking, oh, who am I going to run over with my little Honda Fit? Oh, not them. They have a baby on board. That is the hill, and thanks very much. Yeah, usually those people who have those stickers drive as though the baby's driving. <laughs> like, I don't want to be anywhere in traffic near that person. Sometimes I don't even see a baby on board. Well, yeah. you can't take the no. sticker off if the baby's not on board. <laughs> they should, no, you should only have that up if the baby is 100% on board. There will be checkpoints. I will check. I feel like I don't. I, that I, I'm against this because I sometimes I see it and I'm like I won't honk at that you know maybe the baby's Aww. napping like I am <laughs> I love babies so, but I am more sensitive to cars with baby on board sorry they should just put a sign in their window that says distracted <laughs> because if you have a baby in your car you're like not yeah. focusing as much as you should be yeah. on the road with me I have a I have a car related me? um hill oh, wait uh -oh. do, do you want to go well I think well, we just the thing is uh, Tian and I both drove here in Los Angeles rain, oh, yeah. and there's some sort of parking debacle happening, so I think <laughs> we're on edge. Um, but mine is, I, I mean, there's no way you can't get behind this. If you don't, you're, like, truly a bad person. The people that have handicapped placards that are not handicapped. Yeah. What's going on? That yeah. is so needed for someone else. And, like, I've seen, and then people are like, well, sometimes I take so-and-so to the doctor, and we need, then you got to take it off. Like If they're not it, with you. If yeah. you are able-bodied, no, <laughs> able getting out of your car, I am watching you, and I am cursing you. And it's just so—I know handicapped people that don't have it because they're like, someone else needs it more than me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Stop. You guys, it's so bad. It's so mean, and I think you're getting— really, 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 really bad karma. I just mm -hmm. read an article about a European, um, the Premier League soccer, that there was a, a player that did that. <gasps> John Terry. Shame. Uh, used a handicap placard in, in a handicap parking spot multiple times. And he is like, was like starting on the team playing regularly. Yeah. There's athletes doing it. I've, there's athletes I've, doing I've it. Seen uh, there's athletes of, doing I've it. Seen Hall of Famer. <gasps> oh. Look out of their cars. Okay. 
I would add an addendum that I think if you are a pregnant woman or a pregnant person, that you should be able to apply for a temporary disability placard that yeah, you can yes, hang up. Yes, yes. Some the, parking lots have um, yes. expectant mother but I think spots. E- but I think every pregnant woman should be able to get one that lasts like for yeah. the last like four months of their pregnancy, three, Absolutely. three, four months of their pregnancy. Yeah. It's only fair. It seems very uncomfortable. Also, get your steps in. Like, it's good. <laughs> it's good to like, as we're getting ready for this holiday shopping rush, it's okay to park further away and walk yeah. in. That is a benefit. You are going to be eating pie. Mm-hmm. Walk a few extra steps in the parking lot. <laughs> okay. That's fair. I was going to do a kind of normal one, but now I'm going to do a real bizarre one. I, uh, okay. So, um, so do you know on TV when they start airing Christmas ads? Like yes. it's always way too early. Like yes. they start airing them before Halloween and it's just. See, this is a hill I'll die on. It's never too early it, for me. <laughs> I say no. And I think as a way to discourage, because I used to be like, well, I'm never buying any of those products, you know, like Buick you're cars. Boy, you're boycotting yeah. entire company. Yeah, <laughs> because they're putting ads up for Christmas before Halloween. Uh, it will not stand. But now I think that the way to discourage that is for we need to spread this folk wisdom. Any Christmas ad that airs before Halloween is the dying hallucination of the ad's protagonist. <laughs> it all takes place in the protagonist of the ad's imagination. That person is dying, and it's their last moments of life. They're hallucinating that they're having Christmas, and there's three M&Ms talking to them. Okay, I like this because the, pic- the commercial that comes to mind that I saw recently was one for Jared's, and it was a couple with their child playing Jeng. <laughs> wait, J- wait, Jared's? It's just Jared. Oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> no, this story has multiple Jareds selling jewelry. (laughs) They're all named Jared. Jared. But it was Jared and it's a couple playing Jenga and the little girl like pulls out one block and as she's pulling it out, the dad pushes a ring box through the hole that she has just pulled the Jenga out of to surprise her. So I like, I do like thinking that he pushed it through and then he died. Yeah. Yeah. This is his dying. His dying. His dying. As a a protagonist in a commercial. (laughs) What a brag. Um, A commercial that is no longer airing because they now have a new spokesperson. I, hearing this, have decided that I am no longer that because I died. (laughs) My fictional mother character who lived in San Francisco and had a really beautiful Celine watch on perished. Okay. And that's why I cannot Can sell you... almonds anymore. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tien, do you want to wrap it okay, up? Okay, I guess so, yeah. Um, <laughs> the hill that I will die on, this is more just a, a um, calling out for advice, but the hill that I would die on is that styes are the worst. <laughs> and I keep, I'm sorry, they are. I keep getting them. I've, I have not gotten them in my, like, 32 years of life until this year, and I've gotten them consistently. If there's anyone out there who has any remedies, feel free to hit me up. I've done the hot compresses. I've done the eyelid massages. I've done the antibiotic ointments. I've gone to my ophthalmologist. I have one that's sitting underneath my eye now. You're both looking at me with a nice, kind grimace. (laughs) Both of you are like... (laughs) <laughs> we see it. We see your eyes. It's glorious like, that we need to have empathy. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm trying yeah, for you and your style. So <laughs> I, I guess the whole lie down is that styes are the worst. And also all the remedies are not working for me. So what did your doctor say? Heat compresses. And I've had this mm. one for like a couple months now. How many hours of sleep are you getting a night? 
six. I think you need to you jack need it up. Sleep. Okay. You more need more sleep. sleep. You need more water. Okay. And also, you, we're going to get, like, so many emails about this, and I'll forward them all Can to you. Can you forward yeah. them all to me? Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you should see how many entries we got in our bad holiday pitches Ken. <gasps> it is... I can't wait to read It I is can't wait a frightening number. It is a... Because fr- our listeners are frighteningly weird and hilarious. Yeah, in, in, like, the best possible way. Okay. Guys. Thank you so much for coming by. Thanks to Gloria Steinem. <laughs> wow. I mean, how many times in my life have I said that? Thanks to Gloria Steinem for all the inspiration. We should thank her every day, though. I know we, we should. should. We every should. time she turned to look at me while she was talking, I was like, the power's too much. Your <laughs> <laughs> sky will be gone yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> she cured it. And oh also, thanks to Alyssa Mastermonico for calling in. Thanks for Senator Jennifer McClellan. And there'll be more hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Sarah Barrett, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadina Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 